from Relay FM. This is Download, recorded Thursday, April 5th, 2018. This is episode 49, Good Plus. Welcome back to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I am Jason Snell, your host as always, and I'm joined by two wonderful guests. Uh, one of my former colleagues at IDG, senior editor at PC World, Mark Hockman, joins us for the first time. Mark, welcome to Download. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. It's uh, great to have you here. I was in your offices the other day, and we were talking about you the were. news, and I was inspired. In fact, we have a couple topics inspired by John Phillips, the editor-in-chief over there, um, because he was like, oh, what about this, and what about this? He couldn't make the, the, the show today, but he had ideas, So, um, and he suggested uh, that uh, you be on, and here you are. So, thank you for being here. Um, Lisa Schmeiser is also here, again, editor at IT Pro today, <laughs> and a frequent guest. Hi, Lisa. <laughs> I like her, like, again. Again. <laughs> We keep putting the traps out back, but she keeps podcasting. I don't understand how this works. I don't think that's how that works. I, I think we actually ask you back, and I worry that we yeah, we ask true. you so often. You, you uh, yeah, you and Carolina. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm glad you you uh, keep coming back. It's great. Okay. Yeah. Let's get down to it. The most interesting stories of the week, as chosen by myself and by download producer Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jason. All right, so let's get started. Intel uh, has launched uh, the new H-series Coffee Lake processors. These are uh, processors for mobile, for laptops, let's say, 8th generation, 14 nanometer process, lots of goodies, new i5s and i7s, a new 6-core Intel i9 for laptops, uh, especially for gaming. A lot going on here, a lot of great coverage on PC World about this stuff. Um, Mark, you know, what makes, what makes this generation uh, interesting and maybe a big deal? What, what, you know, what, what's, what are the details about this stuff? Well, there's a couple of things that are interesting about this is that, first of all, we've always had sort of a uh, uh, new generation, new process technology, new chip sort of uh, rollout. And with this eighth generation core stuff, it's just sort of like everything. There's Coffee Lake, there's Cannon Lake, there's um, there's all sorts of different processors sort of falling under this eighth generation core umbrella. And really, when we walked into this briefing uh, not too long ago, um, it was just uh, a little, we were sort of overwhelmed, I guess, by the amount of news that Intel dropped us on about, you know, an hour, an hour and a half's worth of time. And I guess the sort of the flagship news is this Core i9, which the Core i9 has been a processor brand that they've had on the desktop for a while. And this is the first time I've introduced it in the mobile space. And it's a six core, 12 thread chip. Um, not as powerful. Um, they say it's the fastest chip they've ever made, but it's not as powerful as a desktop chip. Um, and this is going to be sort of, sort of that rarefied gaming, uh, laptop market, which probably none of us ever buy except for people that have too much money. But still, if you do have that much money, then this is a chip for you. Um, this is, um, it's really, it's one thing that's interesting about this as well, too, is the fact that, We've always sort of wondered, you know, how does Intel keep improving upon these things? And generally speaking, it's been adding more cores and more threads, and this is certainly true here. But um, what's also interesting is tossed on this sort of this thermal velocity boost, which is this additional 200 megahertz of clock speed uh, for a single core um, that you get if you have a cooled chip. Um, what happens normally is that people just sort of, you know, sit down the desk and they're starting playing games. And what if there's if there's a game that requires an extra boost, uh, this, you know, it kicks up into the, the, the turbo boost speed. Um, and for this, um, 
Let's see. It starts out with, let me just bring up my notes. Um, starts out with uh, 2.9 gigahertz and boosts to 4.8, and that's after the thermal boost. So, again, sort of getting off track here a little bit. Thermal boost is when your ship is cool. Uh, it recognizes that and gives it a little bit extra. It's like uh, the opposite of uh, of underclocking. It's sort of like, I mean, <laughs> that that's fascinating. The bit. idea that, like, hey, look, if it's cool enough, we'll run faster. That's fine. We'll do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Normally what happens is if a chip is hot, it'll sort of downclock itself to avoid going over that thermal limit. In this case, if it's cool, it'll give you that extra boost. Well, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So I imagine this is, this is uh, these chips are, are going to begin appearing or are appearing in lots and lots of laptops from the usual uh, PC laptop vendors, too? We've seen, we've seen a couple. We don't really have a time frame on when they're supposed to announce. Um, MSI um, is, you know, just one of them. Uh, they also had a number of just ordinary sort of Core i7 chips, which probably will be the ones that actually get disseminated into the uh, HPs and Dells of the world. Um, and there's basically four of those mobile chips, um, Core i7, 8550H, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, there's, it's definitely going to be appear, appearing in a number of notebooks probably fairly soon, although I guess I don't really have too much of a time frame on one that's going to appear for everybody. But it's the new generation, or, or at least, uh, okay, it's within a generation, but it's the new batch, so presumably all it the PC laptops will, will, will pick up the new batch. Right. Now, there's one other thing that's kind of interesting is that, I mean, from, from our standpoint, I always kind of wonder... You know how how are people going to you know how how are people going to view these? How are people going to buy these? And so we've always had sort of this Core i three, Core i five, Core i seven hierarchy, which is sort of the good, better, best. And Core i nine kind of blew that up a little bit because now you have good, better, best, and really good. Um, <laughs> most <and> best, yeah, <laughs> most best, exactly, most best. And now they have also too one of the other things they announced at the show was that they have this additional plus brand. Um, so they're going to have i5 plus, i7 plus, and i9 plus, and the plus designates the presence of Optane. And Optane is this sort of this this interesting memory technology which serves as an accelerator. Um, you can actually make a hard drive out of it, or you can t- sort of like tack it onto a hard drive as Optane memory. And what they're going to do here, which I think is actually really smart, is that they want this Optane designation, this Optane, to be sort of the accelerator for for a data drive. So if you've got um, an SSD, which you're running your primary operating system of Windows or whatever it might be, um, uh, you probably have like this, you know, two or three terabyte um, hard drive, which you store games on if you're a gamer or a video, for example, um, or podcasts. Um, and what Optane will do for you is it'll accelerate that hard drive, not quite necessarily to SSD speeds, but certainly faster than what it is already. Um, and what they want to do is obviously they really want to bring that to as many places as they can, uh, in part because AMD doesn't have it. And so what they're going to be doing is they're going to be branding this stuff with i3 plus, sorry, i5 plus, i7 plus, and i9 plus. So you're going to have this sort of this, you have this good, better, best hierarchy, and then you had good, better, best, most bests, as Lisa said. And now you have, <laughs> I don't know what it is, good, better, better plus or whatever it might be. Good plus. Good plus. So it's going to be really interesting when people sort of walk into stores and they go, what does this plus mean? And hopefully the Best Buy retailer will be able to say, well, okay, this is what it means because otherwise, I don't know. Lots of, yeah, I mean, lots of news. Yeah. And and news that leads to new new laptops and all of that. Exactly. There's the other angle. So there are two two really good stories uh, on PC World that I wanted to mention. Um, Gordon Ung wrote a story on PC World that was about, that was sort of him 
him doing his usual tweaking at Apple about like how these these uh, new processors will blow away anything that's in Apple's laptops. But he also wrote a piece on Macworld where he turned it around and was like, what would Apple use these for? And that I, I think that's an interesting question because they're the one they're the one uh, PC manufacturer that doesn't seem to jump at brand new uh intel chips when they come out they seem to be on their own timeline and they've gotten a lot of criticism for being really slow on the uptake in terms of new chips and you know gordon made some interesting speculations about things that he thought apple would probably do like in the in the 13 inch macbook pro using some of this stuff um maybe even in that rumor about an upgraded macbook air that there's there there are processors but he he thinks i i I believe that it's more likely that they would use the previous generation in a in a macbook air uh and then also he he indulged in a little speculation about would apple use an i9 in a laptop and the answer is probably no but you never know as a very high-end macbook pro kind of option but the real question is you know are they even gonna are they even gonna play in this game actually just a quick question for you guys because you know more about macs than i do so i mean apple doesn't really seem like a company that sort of embraces like high performance chips that require a lot of cooling is that right or is that is that just my mis- my misperception no i think that i think that's right like even that's in fair. their even in their high performance desktops uh, tr- like the the iMac is built on parts that are not you know super mm. high performance PC parts. It, the argument has always been that the iMac is more like a high end laptop inside sure. than it is. I, the, I mean, the iMac Pro is using a Xeon and they have a big cooling system, but but Apple has been really reluctant to go too far above the uh, you know more mainstream uh, processors for uh laptop and desktop mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all right makes sense yeah so i mean they've yeah. been conservative there and I, I do wonder also if some of the optimizations intel makes in something like the i9 are so specific for um and i don't know this for sure but this is just my speculation are, are so specifically for the pc gaming market that apple looks right. at it and it's like well there's nothing you know we the what we would have to do in order to make it worth having that chip in our in our product line is not worth it for us because it's you know intel intel is smart enough they're to, not gaming i mean that this is yeah, the thing is if you take a look mm, at who exactly. makes machines mm-hmm. for gaming apple's not going to make inroads into those markets for a wide number of reasons and then if you look at overall gaming train trends mobile and casual gaming is is such a moneymaker and such a big place and apple already has such a strong mobile presence it there's no reason why they would be like you know what we really need to do we need to go after 19 year olds who build out giant elaborate uh techno monoliths on their desks and game 12 hours a day uh, they're not going to do that and, that, and that's so. not a game apple plays it also intel yeah. knows who its customers are right so intel knows like i9 they know who that chip is for and it's for that very specific market that you mentioned mark these expensive right. but you know it's like i gotta get the best gaming laptop they also know what chips apple is interested in and have probably would not surprise me that they you know they know very well which ones in this new batch are most likely to be picked up by apple and occasionally intel has been known to do a, a a variation on one of their chips you know sort of like at apple's request so i'm sure there are some as and, and gordon's piece again was was very good about this some speculation about like which one of these look like the ones that mm-hmm. apple will pick up but the the for me the bigger question is when will apple increase its frequency with its laptop uh, release so that uh people stop complaining about apple sitting on uh, chips that are a year old uh a year plus old or uh, will they remain silent? I mean, I, you would think there would be a MacBook line update this year and that these processors would be a part of it. But we have to, you know, it, it, I won't believe it till I see it. 
Well, we have much more to talk about. We're going to talk more about Apple and Intel and Microsoft. But first, let me tell you about our first sponsor for this episode. We are brought to you in part by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store. Maybe it's a portfolio. Maybe it's a blog. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that will let you do pretty much anything you can imagine on the internet. And the best part is you don't have to do all the servery stuff. You don't have to get a server and run the software and run the patches and run the updates and here's a security warning and all of that stuff. That stuff is invisible. Squarespace handles all of that. You don't have to worry about it. You just build your website. They take care of the rest. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support. So if you need any help, you can get it. Three in the morning, somebody will be there to help you. And they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name for whatever your project is. All of their award-winning templates are beautifully designed so you can show off your great ideas. You don't have to be a web designer and have you can have a beautiful site anyway plans start at just twelve dollars a month it's pretty amazing and you can start a trial without giving them your credit card or anything like that just by going to squarespace.com slash download fm and signing up when you do decide to sign up use the offer code download fm to get 10 percent off your first purchase of a website or domain and show your support for this show once again that's squarespace.com slash download fm and the code download fm for 10 percent off your first purchase thank you to Squarespace for supporting download. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Okay, so Apple and Intel. There was also a report this week from Bloomberg, including Mark Gurman, Mm -hmm. who has very, very good sources inside Apple and around Apple, that Apple is actively working on Apple-built chips to be used in Macs to debut as early as 2020. So the idea here is there there are chip transitions. Um, After 10 years on the Motorola 68000 for for Macs, Apple switched to the PowerPC. After 12 years on the PowerPC, it switched to Intel. It's been 12 years since that switch. It'll be 14 in 2020. It's actually not surprising that we might be at this point, but it is a fascinating story because what does that mean? for Apple and the Mac and Intel. Intel's stock took a hit, which is funny because Apple is not a particularly major (laughs) customer of Intel's. It's a high-profile customer, and it makes Intel feel good. But but it's still a potentially uh, big deal for the the computer industry in in general because it's it's essentially a PC maker saying, you know what, we're just not going (laughs) to... We're just... We're going off of the standard because there's more to be gained in our own chip-making prowess than there is from Intel, which is a pretty shocking thing. So why, uh, why, Stephen, I know you've got opinions about this. Why is this story happening now? What, what's going on here? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things to look at. You know, you mentioned the, the Intel transition, and that was really about the IBM PowerPC roadmap didn't have a future that Apple felt like it could work with. Those chips were hot. They acquired a lot of power, and they can never squeeze like a G5, which was the, the fastest one Apple ever used, into a power book, which was their notebook at the time. And Apple really felt like its back was up against the wall with this chipset. And so they ended up moving to Intel, you said now, um, a long time ago. I remember that time, people kind of freaking out, you know, was it going to make the Mac not feel like the Mac? But at the end of the day, what we got were faster Macs that ran cooler and were actually more flexible in the enterprise environment because you could run Windows directly on them and that sort of thing. There was a very clearly defined problem set and a very clearly defined answer in that transition. What I think is interesting about this one is I'm not sure that's the case today. You know, yes, 
Intel has been slow in some regards, but we just spent 20 minutes talking about a bunch of fancy new stuff they're doing. They yeah. have more stuff in, in their pipeline. Intel is making good products. I don't feel like Apple's looking at the future of that, feeling like their their backs are against the wall. But the other side of that coin is Apple is a company that likes devices to be as thin and light as possible. And to do that with Intel chips, you end up with something like the 12-inch MacBook, which is underpowered for everyone except the most basic user. You know, somebody like like Jason, you or I, who like make our living as creative professionals on the Mac, the MacBook is not for us. We need much more power than that. So in looking at that, Apple has a solution. It may not have a problem, but it does have a solution, and that is its <laughs> own silicon team that have been making ARM-based chips for the iPad and iPhone and Apple Watch and Apple TV now since uh, since the original iPad in 2010. They've been going at this for over eight years. And they really know what they're doing. The chipsets are really good. The A series of processors has eclipsed the low end and even the mid-range max as far as raw CPU power. There are a bunch of other problems there we can get into, but Apple, I think, feels like they have – or they're far enough down the road where they could start chipping away at their Intel products and converting them into ARM products. And you know, you're know, you going to lose things like Thunderbolt potentially or x86 compatibility. You know, There's a lot of issues to talk about. But I kind of worry that it's a that it's a we have a solution and we're just going to shoehorn a problem into it, um, which you know makes me a little unsettled. But if Apple, I said this on Connected yesterday, uh, a show here on on Relay, if uh, if Apple's good at anything and they're good at lots of things, but if they're really good at one thing, it's big transitions. You know, you mentioned these processor transitions. They transitioned from the classic Mac OS to OS ten. They and one that gets overlooked a lot is they transitioned Mac OS X and iOS from a 32-bit to a 64-bit system, basically seamlessly. Uh, very few apps got left behind. Those that did get left behind hadn't been updated in a long time. But from a user perspective, you bought an iPhone 5S or you booted up into 64-bit Mac OS, you didn't really notice the difference. They did a really good job with that. Apple's good at this. Um, but yeah, the timing the timing is weird. I mean, I think Apple feels like they they can do it and we all know that Apple for better or for worse likes controlling as much as possible about their hardware. You know, I don't think this is about revving a MacBook every 6 months just because they can um because like you said earlier, Apple doesn't always even jump on new Intel stuff. You know, they they let generations of processors go by that don't meet their needs or they can't justify the investment in revving something or whatever. That's slowly changing, I think, but I think this is much more about making things thinner and lighter, especially on the notebook side, uh, with incredible battery life, which is a huge benefit we're seeing on the Windows side with uh, ARM uh, notebooks and two-in-ones and convertibles, that they have like crazy battery life. Apple wants that. And uh, and so I think that I think this is real. I think it's inevitable, but it's, it's definitely complicated. I think this is possibly a clue as to how Apple's going to be positioning its hardware and re-educating users on how they think of computers in general, meaning that if they're going to their own chipset, this kind of suggests to me something that I read by some guy in Macworld. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. um, Where, you know, and and Jason, this is actually a point that you brought up where once you, you brought it up, I was like, oh, yeah, it makes sense, especially in light of the education announcement, which is um, Apple may be shifting its strategies so that instead of having an iOS and a Mac OS and expecting users to pick out, um, you know, hardware and 
be able to adjust their knowledge and their user experience to, oh, this is my iOS environment. This is my macOS environment. Some stuff moves seamlessly. They may be making a move towards the idea that, you know, you will have a completely seamless computing experience and that your laptop computer is not so much a computer in the sense that we had through the nineties and the early two thousands and even now where it's meant to be more high octane than your tablet, but your computer might just be something as simple as a Chromebook, like the Apple version of a Chromebook where it's lightweight, it's mobile. They may be getting out of the, the higher, higher powered, higher end computer business. Um, they may have seen the writing on the wall over the next uh, decade or so and decided this is not where we need to be, or this is not where we want to be because we think there's more money, uh, more market growth and more sticky repeat customer experience in creating and servicing a lightweight mobile liquid computing environment. I think they can do both. There's actually, as we're recording, there's like breaking news about the Mac Pro coming in 2019. And in this article, Apple has built what they're calling the Pro Workflow Team, looking and being charged with ensuring pro hardware and software works together well and meets the needs found in the field by professionals. So like, I think a like the the story of Mac OS and, and iOS combining like is a different topic. Like you can have ARM Macs that run Mac OS and they never merge the OSs. I think they will and they probably should, but I think that's a slightly different topic than today. But I I think that Apple can have like a four, you know fourteen eighteen hour two in one you know crazy iPad Mac or MacBook running Mac OS and still build the iMac Pro I'm sitting in front of. I don't I think that they are at the same time looking to like you said make those like entry level and consumer experiences better than ever because that's a really important market to Apple but i think they also i think they've shown over the last year and a half that they are very serious about the pro market and will continue to be so especially you know with this article coming out today about the the this new pro workflow team. Uh, so I don't, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I, I do think that it's kind of interesting that they're sort of diverging paths depending on what bucket of consumer you fit into. Right. And Apple's, Apple's uh, previous transitions have been from A to B. And this one doesn't feel like to me that they can truly go from A to B, but what they can do is transition some segment. And that that's why where you look at it and say, well, maybe whatever they define pro max as being, maybe that uses Intel hardware. I saw somebody speculate yesterday. It's also possible maybe they work with AMD on things that are kind of weird hybrids that Apple designs with AMD that that use some of Apple's technology and use x86 so that they can keep some of the advantages of that. Um, There's nothing stopping them from saying, we're going to have two processors. We're going to have ARM processors on all of these laptops and these lower-end desktops, but on these high-end desktops and maybe high-end laptops, we'll offer an Intel configuration too. And that means developers are going to have to, you know, in Xcode, they're just going to have to compile for both architectures they could do that it's messy and it's not something apple has done before but if apple feels like can they make money off of it is there enough of a market where it would justify both the 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 human overhead and the market education and maintaining the product lines or trying to sell them to people i guess is my question one of the big issues is that the most perhaps the most important professional segment for apple is developers because they're the ones writing the software that the consumers use and that and they need uh, professional level systems in order to write that and compile that software so there there's a lot i don't i mean i in my article that lisa referenced on macworld we uh i mentioned that it was like the parable 
parable of the blind men and the elephant, where there's so many different little bits that we're getting here. I'm not sure we're seeing the big picture of exactly what their strategy is, because there's also this discussion of this uh, uh, possible new approach that lets iOS software essentially run on the Mac in some form more easily than right now, where there's lots of iOS software. Yes, I just keep thinking of kind of a Chromebook model where the idea is it's lightweight and the OS doesn't have a whole lot of bells and whistles, but it gets things done and, and sticky enough to keep you in an overall services and cloud-based ecosystem. Um, I don't think Apple's ever going to roll out a suite of apps like Google did or like Microsoft has. They, um, But I do think that this is a company that's already made inroads into um, home entertainment with audio, with home automation, with TV, things like that. They may be trying to be sticky in a more um, – and with health. And they may be trying to, to create a lightweight, sticky platform that's more consumer-facing. I think for, for me, there's a couple of things. I mean, one, I totally agree that um, at least for an entry-level machine, Machine, all sort of all day computing is is sort of the the ideal that you're shooting for. I mean, uh, Microsoft did that with the Surface laptop, which is obviously an Intel based hardware. But if you could do that with the the Mac too, I mean, you're talking about students taking these things to class and working on these things in lunchtime and, and study halls or you know wherever it might be, and having eight hour, nine hour, ten hour, you know, twenty four hour battery life is it was is absolutely fantastic. Well, yeah, those um, arm I, the, those arm Windows convertibles are like twenty hour battery life claims. I mean, it's I have one right now, and that's absolutely true. Um, it's it's it's, it's it's really the performance suffers in some areas, um, especially if some, you know you can't run 64-bit apps, for example. I've run into bugs. I mean, there's there's issues with them certainly, but from that standpoint, yeah, they absolutely make a lot of sense. I think for me, um, you know, from a macroscopic sort of view, and, and you know, just even from a developer point of view, um, especially as someone who would be you know, not, not, I'm not working for for Apple, but somebody who might be interested in working for Apple, I think that ideally, you know, if somebody was coming out of school. And they were a software developer or they were a hardware developer and they could work for a company like Apple and they could go into a meeting and say, you know what, I think that this particular code loop could be optimized better if we had some dedicated hardware support. And on the other side of the table was a hardware engineer that said, hey, yeah, we can do that. And they spin that rev up in the next generation of architecture. I mean, that would be that would be the holy grail for, for computer architectures. I mean, you have software development that's supported in hardware. You have hardware development that's supported in software. I mean, no other company could do that. Um, if they could pull that off, I think that would be just gosh, head and shoulders above the rest of the industry, really. And that's what they're doing with the iPhone. Like they, they have they have history doing this because they're able to do that with, with iPhone and iPad where they're building the hardware and they're building the processors for them and they can kind of do those in lockstep. So um, bringing that to the Mac, that would be that would be the advantage. But there is the open question, as Stephen pointed out, which is, is this a solution in search of a problem or is, uh, you know, a, or, or uh, what's the future that they are going to get to that they're working toward? And that's harder for us. We can guess a lot about it, but we don't know. But they, you know, they obviously aren't just saying let's switch because we can. They they have a benefit and a plan, presumably, to get there, and we'll just have to see what that is. We have a little more about Apple and Google to talk about, and also, of course, Microsoft is coming up. But first, let me tell you about our next sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Warby Parker, quality eyewear at a fraction of the usual price, founded by four friends who believe your glasses shouldn't cost more than your iPhone. They've cut, cut out the middleman so they can sell directly to you in-store and online. That means Warby Parker is able to provide high-quality, good-looking prescription glasses at a much fairer price. If you're thinking that buying glasses online might be difficult, Warby Parker makes it so easy. They have a free home try-on program. You can order up to five pairs of glasses, try them on for five days. There's no obligation to buy. Shipping is free. There's a prepaid return shipping label, and then you pick your favorite pair. They can call 
call your doctor if you're not sure what your prescription is. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses that include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. And not only that, but for every pair you buy, a pair of glasses is distributed to someone in need. I just recently did this. Steven, you just recently did this. We tried on some glasses and then placed our order. I got my glasses back. They're really nice. Um, I ordered mine with the high index so that they're, uh, because my eyes are really bad, so that they're not super thick. Uh, They look really great. They're lightweight. Um, It was easy to try on the glasses and find out that um, these many of these styles did not work for me. But there was the one that my family agreed was like, oh, yeah. That's that's <laughs> that's the always one. fun to, to, Order to have one. a little fashion show of glasses. Mm-hmm. That's always, right. Always fun. Yeah, that's right. You can't do that when you're at the optometrist all by yourself. But with a home try on kit, you can get everybody's got an opinion about what your glasses look like. Uh, listeners to this show can head to warbyparker.com slash download. That's W-A-R-B-Y-P-A-R-K-E-R dot com slash download. Order a free home try-on kit today and check out the Warby Parker app. They've got a home try-on companion that lets you make a video of you wearing all the frames and you can share it and get people's opinions because, boy, people do have opinions. If you want their opinions anyway, you may not. Um, and if you have an iPhone 10, you can use the new Find Your Fit feature, which uses the True Depth camera to map and measure your facial features and then it'll recommend frames that are most likely to fit your face. That is amazing. Upgrade your glasses experience. Go to warbyparker.com slash download to order your free home try-ons today. Thank you, Warby Parker, for sponsoring Download. Okay, uh, a little more. This is so we're pivoting from Apple and Intel to Apple and Google, and then we're going to make our way to Microsoft. There's so many little <laughs> things going on this week. Um, Apple earlier this week announced that it hired uh, John Jan, was it Jan Andrea, uh, Google's former chief of search and artificial intelligence, hired away the the guy who is in charge of search and AI at Google to go to Apple. He's going to report directly to Tim Cook, one of 16 people. That's too many people, Tim. I've been a manager before. 16 people is too many people. But 16 executives reporting directly to Tim Cook. He's going to run machine learning and AI strategy at Apple. And uh, they made some statements. Uh, Tim Cook talked about how uh, he shares Apple's commitment to privacy and their thoughtful approach about making computers even smarter. Um, this feels like it's a, a a big win for Apple in an area where they have not been perceived as being a leader. What do you uh, What do you think? So my sense is that this hire could not come at a better time. Or I mean, it's been in the works for a while. So obviously, Apple's been like, oh, we need to fix it. Uh, what I find really interesting in the coverage that I've seen is uh, there was some analyst criticism that, oh, Apple's really missing the boat on AI because they keep wittering on about user privacy. And they're really missing the opportunity to go romping through tons of user data and, and, and use that data to, you know, make Siri smarter and to build out new revenue streams and so on and so forth. And Apple's, um, Apple's response has been, actually, our new hire shares our commitment to privacy, and we are totally fine with that. And Cook has come out swinging on privacy, um, and he's using it as a market differentiator because, like, he did that with Facebook too. And, um, so what I'm curious about is if this privacy thing is kind of a watch the hand, watch the hand smokescreen, or if they really are going to try to find a way to, um, make Siri more useful. Um, in a matter that feels respectful to user privacy and um, makes you feel comfortable with the boundaries or lets you feel like you have more control over the boundaries with, with what you want to share. I do find it notable that Siri is as much a punchline as anything else. Um, 
I know some people who find it some degree of useful. I also know some people who find it um, to be high comedy. <laughs> so uh, honestly, I feel like the product has nowhere to go but up. I'm just really curious as to why um, privacy has all of a sudden become like a calling card for Apple in this space. And um, what the long term uh, market advantages or t- uh, user experience uh, facets are going to be as a result of that. Well, Apple's always known for reinventing things, so they're, re- they're reinventing privacy in this case. Um, <laughs> iPrivacy, I is that it? iPrivacy? It's very exciting. I it's it's exactly. streamlined. Apple privacy, yeah. Apple privacy. It might be a, It might be opportunistic spin, but I mean, I think they they, they certainly um, you know are on the, the side of the angels here. I mean, most people complain about Microsoft and Cortana, for example, prying into their every little bit of lot, you know, every every little corner of their life, even though there are privacy controls that basically turn everything off or even erase everything. Yeah. But, see, the thing um, is, is Cortana's privacy mm-hmm. controls are. Great. Great. They're super granular. Absolutely. Um, yep. And you can customize them depending on your level of comfort. And they also work really well with Alexa too. Um, which is which is something um granted, Apple has all of these guys who have their own assistants have skin in the game, but I think what users are gonna want to look for is no user is going to want to say, yeah, I'm 100% an Apple household. It's going to be like, I would like it if my Siri could work with my Amazon Alexa, or I would like it if I could get Cortana to work with Siri, since I have an iPhone and a Windows 10 machine. And from a user perspective, all you want is to be able to access your data when you want on what you want. Like, you really don't care if it's Siri that's telling you what it is, or if it's Cortana, like, just get it done. So, you know, that's, I, I feel like that's, that is a problem that I have, that, that I think Cortana has done a lot to address. So, so I'll, I'll ride or die for Cortana on this one. Um, I read something recently that I thought made a great point, which is one of the reasons Apple can afford to get smug about privacy is because they don't have to make a whole lot of money off of monetizing users. Like, they have hardware sales. They have a music store. They have all sorts of other revenue. So the idea that, oh, we make a lot of money by selling user data sets to companies um, or to advertisers, like they don't have to do that. So in that way, privacy is actually also a luxury item. As opposed, as opposed to a simple commodity where, where, you know, you're the product. One of the things that I was kind of curious about was that, you know, if you look at the AI solutions from the various vendors, I mean, Alexa is sort of focused upon commerce. They want you to buy stuff. Uh, Cortana's, uh, I don't know if it actually ran today or not, but I interviewed Javier Sotera, which is their new Cortana chief. Um, he took over from the Outlook Mobile uh, side of things at Compli. Um, and I think that interview may be on the site today. I haven't had any chance to check. Um, anyways, though, his, his point is, is that Cortana now is sort of an all-day assistant where you sort of, uh, it's, it's there for productivity, it's also there for after hours. I don't know what Siri is going to be or evolve under this new leadership. I mean, they usually try to sort of have a particular slant, and I'm not sure if it's going to be an assistant to help on your consumer side, on the, on the, on the consumer-specific side of life. I'm not really sure if they're going to have a slant or not. I would be interested to know what they are interested in pursuing, though, as their particular angle. It's hard to look inside the black box and know exactly like what Apple's been doing and how it's been running and all of that. It does at least feel like what Apple's doing here is saying we need some outside thought from a company that has a better idea of how this thing works than we do internally. Because Apple, 
you know, bottom line is Apple is not a company with services in its DNA, and it's trying to get better with machine learning and AI stuff, but it's not as core to its values as it is to Google's values, right? So, mm-hmm. um, uh, it, or Amazon's yeah. at this point. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, very interesting uh, move, but it's going to be one of those things where we're not going to know for years whether Apple's fortunes change here, and even then we won't know whether he had, you know, he was the reason why it changed or not. So, we it's just sort of like a well, well, that's another, you know, it seems like a, a, a Apple can crow about caring about this, right? I just remembered Apple's made a deal with IBM where Siri is going to be working with Watson. Um, as it, That makes it sound <laughs> They're so... Buddies. They're buddies. They're teaming up. They're going to fight crime. One's a cop, <laughs> yeah. one's not a cop. Yeah, yeah. I, was imagining, I was imagining this a Saturday morning cartoon, actually. <laughs> but, Cortana's um, teaming up with Alexa, so it's sort of the same thing. Oh, man. Well, yeah, but, but, but the idea is that Siri will be the interface through which a lot of IBM's um, corporate customers, especially supply chain customers, and... Um, IBM is aiming at supply chains. They're aiming at HR. They're aim- they're aiming at a lot of uh, front office operations that are heavy that that require on a, no- a, a knowledge of regulation and an enforcement of regulation. And their vision that they put forth in the Think 2018 conference was Siri will be the front end where you talk to it, and then Siri uh, interfaces with Watson and spits back out the results um, in a way that is is palatable and comprehensible to people. So perhaps another angle of this hiring, you know, Apple's all watch the hand, watch the privacy, but maybe another angle is you're talking about an executive who is used to figuring out how to answer the question. We have a fr- we we have unimaginable volumes of data. How do we build a set of tools that can quickly query and turn and, and spit out an answer that is comprehensible and actionable to a human audience? And so it's, he may also be very closely involved in figuring out how Siri is going to work with the kind of AI and machine learning that is aimed at an, an industry and then that's great. That's another revenue stream. Because what you can say is we give you the Siri experience so that when you're out in the field doing XYZ in your highly technical job, all you have to say is, hey, Siri, am I in compliance if I snap, you know, snap a photo, upload it, Siri looks at the photo, Siri queries an AI on the back end, Siri spits it back out with, from what I can see, blah, blah, blah. That's a huge market potential right there. If you can control the API for that kind of AI querying experience, that's like a license to, to print money. All right, we'll see what Apple does and if Apple can really embrace this stuff, but we won't see for a very long time is what I'm saying, no, but we no, will. No, it's it's 5 it's 5 to 15 years yeah, out. Yeah, it's all to play yeah. for though. That's that's the interesting thing and if if nothing else, it's clear that Apple knows that this is an issue and this is a place where it needs to be investing um and then again, it's all about execution for everybody. They're all they're all trying to get in here. Um we have one more topic, but before we do that, a couple of other things including telling you about our next sponsor. This episode also brought to you by Pingdom. That's the company that offers uptime monitoring and web performance management. You are more familiar with Pingdom than you might think because Pingdom is helping keep your favorite sites online. Evernote, BuzzFeed, Netflix. If you've used any of those sites lately and not run into tr- trouble, guess what? It's It may be because of Pingdom because Pingdom warns these companies and they can warn you when something is wrong 
on your internet presence. Websites are pretty sophisticated now and have a bunch of different moving parts, contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, a whole lot more. Um, you don't need to just check a homepage and say, yep, the homepage is loading, everything's fine, because there may be some other aspect of your site and the services it offers that is not working perfectly. Pingdom checks the availability of all the functions on your website, and you don't just get a message when your entire site goes down. You'll get a message when that form doesn't work, when search queries aren't coming back properly, all sorts of things like that. So you hear about it before your customers complain to you about it. All Pingdom really needs to get started is the URL you want to monitor. They take care of the rest. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now. That's P-I-N-G-D-O-M dot com slash RelayFM for a 14-day free trial, no credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code DOWNLOAD at checkout to get a massive 30% off your first invoice. Thank you to Pingdom for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. Now, before we go to our last topic, I want to let you in on the story you might have missed, as recommended to me by John Phillips, editor-in-chief over at IDG Consumer. There is an epidemic sweeping San Francisco, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, starting last month, three different startups have rolled out motorized scooter rentals across San Francisco. You can drive them about up to 15 miles per hour. You look really super cool when you're driving around on an electric scooter, let me tell you. They've got names like Bird, Lime Bike, and Spin. They let you reserve a scooter from a smartphone app for a small fee. And then guess what happens? You leave the scooter wherever you want at the end of the journey, which means the sidewalks and doorways of San Francisco are full of scooters just laying around discarded like like garbage (laughs) and Mm -hmm. so now people are complaining that these scooters are just everywhere they're not regulated the city officials say they're planning to uh to planning to cut down i think john had to step over several scooters on his way into the second street offices of idg (laughs) that morning (laughs) and was really grumpy about it but it it does you have to step over a lot of things that's true there's a lot of stuff to step over on the sidewalks of san francisco but what i'm saying is this is quintessentially uh san francisco where a bunch of companies have decided to do do a product that may or may not actually be wanted by anybody apparently not thinking through all of the ramifications like the fact that these just get dropped on sidewalks in various places and also apparently without uh, maybe consulting with like what the laws are of the city and so now the city has to get involved it just it's a very san francisco story from start to finish and it made me laugh that uh because <laughs> like yeah everybody's grumpy the people are walking the streets are grumpy the people maybe the people riding the uh, scooters aren't grumpy they're like Wee! and then they just drop it and run away um, see we have lime bike in alameda Actually, it's been interesting to see because Line Bike has kind of taken over and uh, it's been fun to see where the bike, where, where the critical agglomerations of bikes are, where people generally stop and start and stop. Um, but generally speaking, it's been very respectful. Like the bikes are just kind of propped up out of the way. They're not blocking sidewalks. Um, people seem very excited about the opportunity to be able to ride the bikes around. Yeah, I think the scooters, um, I think people don't scooters, know what to I do think with are scooters. Too far. Yeah. The, these kids with their scooters. Well, when I commuted from Alameda to San Francisco, we used to take the ferry and there was this one person on the ferry with me who had a motorized scooter and they would go tearing down the gangplank of the ferry and then down the Embarcadero, just weaving around people. And on the one hand, I, I guess kudos for finding a way to not walk in San Francisco. But on the other, it seemed like a really hostile act towards pedestrians and, um, you know, people in crosswalks and, and things like that to just zip, 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 zip. zip. It, it, uh, 
it speaks, I think, to a, a bigger infrastructure issue, which is that we should probably have better bike lanes or, or better lanes for non-automotive traffic so that bicyclists and scooter people can have a safe way to move from point A to point B and, and not, you know, mow down people on sidewalks. I guess I've been walking around San Francisco for a number of years, and we went through that period of time where Razor scooters were sort of the hot thing. And yep. everybody would have their little push <laughs> Razor scooters, that. and they were raising their scooters. <laughs> and I don't know, six months to a year later, they all sort of vanished. I mean, I think the yeah. same thing's going to happen here. Um, I mean, for right now, it's just sort of like, you know, like I think you said, it's just sort of San Francisco. I mean, you got homeless people on the streets. You got people, you know, just on electric scooters. You I mean, I think that... Tech nerds I mean, on electric scooters. It used to be Segways, yeah, but these, now it's electric we have those little We have those little sort of Vespa things uh Sort of in, near the South Park area too, where oh, yeah. um, where they actually come with a helmet, which I think is a useful thing yeah, because I can't really see myself. <laughs> yeah, those. I mean, I can't see myself going on an electric scooter and not bailing on that after a block because there's potholes all over the place. So I mean, yeah. um, <laughs> it might be a way to th- might be a way to thin out the herd. I mean, just Sorry. thank God there's no jetpack startups. Can you imagine? Disrupt sidewalks, San Francisco. All right, uh, one last topic, um, and Lisa, I'm really interested in your uh, take on this. Microsoft's Reorg Glass Week happened. Actually, I think announced while we were recording or while we were about to record the show. They're not going to have a dedicated Windows division. The OS uh, has been split. There's a core engineering group placed under the Azure team, and the features and front-end teams are now part of the group that runs Office 365. Um, This is a... Remember, when Steve Ballmer was running Microsoft, it was all about Windows, Windows, Windows. And uh, with Satya Nadella, you know, he... he, You know, Microsoft has a huge amount of leverage and makes profit on Windows and all of that, but the fact is, it's... uh, You know, it's not a growth area. It's not going to be a growth area. Area, and this is the latest indication that Microsoft is uh, being uh, is taking a different tack on what its business is, and it's kind of shocking. Um, ben Thompson wrote a really good piece with a very inflammatory title called "The End of Windows," that was about, in the end, about how this is consistent with sort of how Microsoft's been moving and how Satya Nadella has viewed the business. But what, you know, as, as a Microsoft observer, Lisa, what do you think about the latest reorg and what it means for Microsoft and uh, Windows in the future? So it's not a surprise. Uh, having covered this company for a couple of years now and having been to a number of their events and having to live tweet many of the keynotes, one of the things that I found most interesting is in the last two to three big events they've had, like the word Windows never gets uttered. Instead, they focus on cloud, they focus on AI, they focus on productivity, they focus on digital transformation. What Microsoft um, or what under Nadella has started doing is they very deliberately began about two, three years ago, three years ago, I'd say, they began very deliberately positioning themselves as a company that was focused on how people worked and their idea. And and the big idea they've been trying to put forth the whole time is we are interested in making tools that you will use to do what you want to do. And in a way they were trying, they're, they're trying to position its technology, their technology. So it's ubiquitous, it's transparent, and it's the default for productivity, for changing work processes, things like that. So if you've been listening to them for a while and where they've been shifting their emphasis, um, like Windows 10 is a thing that's happening, but they've essentially turned it into, um, you know, software as a service. It's operating system as a service, especially with uh, the regular updates. And if you take a look at their earnings over the past, uh, I'd say even just two to three years, um, 
they usually report them by three different divisions. One is called productivity and business processes. Um, that includes your Office 365 subscriptions and Office software and things like that. Um, one is intelligent cloud, which is Azure. And one is more personal computing. And they've seen great growth in productivity and business processing and more personal computing, which has been the division that deals with their OEM sales and their Windows um the revenue, it, it still makes the most revenue out of those three divisions, but it's not growing. It's dropping year over year because, you know, hardware sales aren't a reliable source of revenue anymore and neither are operating systems, to be frank. So this reorg, um, in addition to moving resources to areas where they want them to go, like AI, um, like the cloud, things like that. I think it's also uh, going to be reflected in how they start reporting results, to be honest. Um, and it will make the numbers look really good because they can say, look, um, we, you know, we, we're doing great things in this. Uh, let me see what the divisions were. We're doing great things in the experiences and devices because they'll have revenue streams that are propping up um, that division as the device sales continue to drop. Um and uh, meanwhile, they can bolster out AI, and that will really help their, their Azure line of business as well. I mean, they're going toe-to-toe with IBM in this space, because IBM is also going after managed cloud services and throwing Watson at it. And so Microsoft is already... a Microsoft's already a little bit behind the uh, eight ball in this area, and this is a great chance for them to catch up. I mean, there's two critical areas they're going to have to catch up with over the next 10 years or so. One of them is in... Um, commercial AI services, and the other one's going to be in quantum computing. So um, I think the reorg is is a smart repositioning towards where computing is going in five to 10 years. And I think that the gentle easing of Windows as uh, one of a line of products instead of a flagship product is an indication that we've basically closed the book on one era of computing where companies were fighting for who was going to define the desktop experience for the user. We, we're, we're done with that era. It's we're, They're moving now into um, fighting over how we're going to define the way we do our jobs with information query, interfacing, and um, optimizing data. Mark, what do you think? As somebody who works for PC World, what do you think about uh, this uh, transformation of Microsoft and how it relates to Windows? A couple of things. I mean, one of the things that Ben Thompson focused upon was the fact that we don't really have a, a Windows division. It's no, there's nothing called Windows. It's called experiences and devices. <clears throat> um, I will say that one of the criticisms I had of that was that he used the same argument in 2014 to say, hey, look, you know... Um, there, Microsoft in 2014 really spent just a sentence talking about Surface. Uh, they mentioned Surface once, and he took that as an interpretation that Surface was on its way out, which we don't we know now not not, not to be true. It's still sort of a, a billion dollar per quarter division, although it's like Lisa mentioned, because of the hardware situation, it's sort of not struggling, but it's essentially flat. It's up and down and so forth, depending upon the variabilities and in in in, in 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 sales and so forth. I think that one of the things that I've always kind of curious was curious about is, and I didn't really necessarily. I, you know, when you, when you see an organization like that, there's always a, the, the tendency to have a hot take. And my mind was basically that 
to taking the, the, the memo and to say, Hey, look, you know, um, they're, they want some sort of, you know, unification in, the, in their, in their, the way that they view office and windows and so forth. And one of the things that I didn't go that far to say, but one of the things that I noticed that Sacha mentioned was he mentioned Microsoft 365, which is sort of their enterprise focus upon office and windows and everything's sort of in the same vein. And I think that Microsoft really has this sort of recurring revenue subscription model religion. And I would be interested to see as, as Lisa obviously pointed out the fact that again we are seeing recurring updates on windows i would be interested to see if microsoft tries at some point maybe on the enterprise space to go to a subscription level for for, for windows um and just say hey look if you want constant updates um you know and you need constant security updates because you want your enterprise to be secure we want you to pay you know a hundred dollars or whatever it might be per user per year i don't know if they're going to do that that's complete speculation on my part but we have build coming up in about a month's time and it would be very i would be very interested to see if they actually announce something like that now at bill is as again, as Lisa pointed out, yes, they have. They haven't. They haven't. They've they've made cloud and AI sort of the focus, and they've downplayed Windows. And I think they're going to continue to do that as well. Um, what will be interesting to see is if Windows, what role Windows will play going forward. I mean, obviously, Windows is not going to die overnight. Um, but as I think, uh, uh, I think it was Emil Prudelinski at Venturebeat pointed out. Um, it's true, I think, that Windows will have sort of a, um, a downgraded role going forward. I mean, it's going to be sort of the infrastructure. It's going to be the, 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 fun, the foundation of, of, of Microsoft. But it's just not going to be an area where they, they uh, develop or they um, and try to improve as much as they once did. So I think that, um, you know... I think that we're going to find out a lot. I mean, I think the bottom line is this thing. I think we're going to have we have a lot of questions heading into the Build Developer Conference in, in Redmond in a month's time, and I think we're going to find out some of those answers there. Um, and those answers are going to sort of shape the future of Microsoft going forward for the next decade or so. I think I mean, as dominant as Microsoft was with Windows back in the day, especially, but even now in in the desktop arena, right? It's still it's still the 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 standard, right? And Apple's got a little share of the market, and there's some Linux stuff, and that's about it. I always felt like the latter day Balmer era was. Was, was they were all like a victim of their own success they were kind of trapped in it and and Balmer chose to revel in it but like that moment when Nadella came in and they put office on the iPad and said you know we're not going to we're not going to worry about it we want our stuff used everywhere and i you know i think i think this is just an evolution windows isn't going to go away it's huge and it's going to remain hugely important for a long time but i you know in fact you could really argue that Windows is going to be way better when it doesn't have to be the standard bearer for literally everything Microsoft does, and that Microsoft is bigger than Windows. Which, um, yeah, I think it's I, I'm I'm a, I'm a Satya Nadella fan to this to this day. I think it's a, I think it's I a well. good step. Yeah. Well, I think we're looking. I think we're looking at a real shift in. Um, I would even hesitate to call it the tech industry, but that's how we understand it right now. I think we're looking at a real shift where, um, from about 1970 to. Now, it's been the idea that you can use computers in, an, in a ubiquitous, everyday working environment, and they're not siloed or the exclusive province of, um, you know, NASA or the Department of Defense or other places that do a lot of math all the time. Like, the, the aim of the computing industry was, here is how we can automate these things that people used to do by hand, like bookkeeping and filing your taxes or uh, keeping records or updating your library card catalog. All of those are things that have been turned into data sets and automated and 
accessed via computer user interface. That's all happened like over the course of our lifetime. And now what these companies are trying to do is redefine computing again, because we've gotten to the point where the tech is ubiquitous and we've trained successive generations of people to accept and understand the idea that you're going to have rapid and automated processes as part of your workflow. And what's next is, okay, what are we going to do with this? We we can still amp up the power. We can change how people interact with information. We can we can do more, more, more and cool things with that. Like augmented reality is going to become part of user interfaces before we even know it. I would guarantee that by the time you're doing, um, you know, download episode number 400, all of us will have some sort of haptic interface that we're using to do our work as well. Because <laughs> why should you be, com- why should you be confined to a keyboard? Um, and we'll be talking about, uh, different ways to grab, analyze, and deploy the products of analysis in terms of information. So I think we're actually on the edge of another computing revolution. And Microsoft is dying to put itself front and center there, which is why they keep talking about things like optimizing productivity and using AI to augment the human experience or to augment human ability as opposed to replacing it. And, um, they, they really want to set the terms for the next, for, for the next, um, big paradigm shift that we're going to have both recreationally and professionally with, with computing. And Apple is doing this to uh, an extent as well, although not with the same future focused aggressive positioning as Microsoft has. But look at companies like Google and Amazon and IBM, and they're all doing the same thing, which is we have this vast computing base, we have a vast pre-installed user base, we have these vast stores of data. And now we have decided, you know, you hairless apes, this is what we're doing next with all of this. So I do wonder a little bit because um, you brought up mixed reality. And I thought that was a sort of one of the things that I've been sort of thinking about on my end, too, is that if Microsoft is moving towards sort of a cloud AI, um, you know, paradigm. I think that sort of its its cloak, uh, its, its direction that it's moving is it, pulling away from the consumer side of Windows. Um, and we've seen that with like the the, the, the termination of, of Groove Music, for example, the Groove Music, Groove Music Pass, where they've encouraged people to go to Spotify. But for example, I mean, you brought up mixed reality. I mean, Microsoft made mixed reality sort of one of the cornerstones of Redstone 3, the Fall Creators update. And really, I mean, we haven't seen a thing um, from that on that front, except no, for... No, uh, not like at a, the consumer level market. You're right. No, most of it's been Most of it's been really aggressively positioned at um, industry-specific deployments. And um, I don't know what the revenue strategy or the thinking behind this is. Um, but, you know, I have yet to see, and, and maybe no one knows how to do it, where someone has been able to say, all right, this is how you're going to work on your spreadsheet, or all right, <laughs> this is how you're going to record your podcast. Um you know, they've done some stuff with gaming there, but it's been surprising to me that they're not as aggressive with augmented reality and gaming as they could be, especially since they have the Xbox platform to work with, too. And the HoloLens, too. We've had that for years and years, and that's I just know, sort of faded away as well. Is am- and the HoloLens is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and is. Yeah. yeah. And they've done so, they did some interesting stuff there. Like they worked with my, my favorite story about the HoloLens was they worked with NASA and trained somebody on the International Space Station. They walked them through a really complicated mechanical work 
repair. And they said, okay, here's your use case is instead of having to uh, make sure all of our astronauts are like crazy technical experts and everything, we can put up people who are just topical experts. And then if something breaks, they pop on a HoloLens and somebody at Mission Control can walk them through the training with what they have to do. This broadens the number of people you can put up in space and um, opens up the potential for everybody. And I was like, wow, between that and 3D printing, you've dramatically changed how you can do long-term space habitation. Um, but that's the that's like the last we've heard of it. And they do HoloLens like at Home Depot to redesign kitchens. <laughs> You're like, oh. Well, supposedly. Okay. I've never actually seen yeah. one in action. Have you? I don't know. <laughs> it might be there. No, I've only yeah. I've only seen the demos. I've I it's not I haven't I haven't popped over to like Oakland and been been all right, I'm right, looking right. for countertops. How would these look? <laughs> so. Steven, we found our way to get into space. We just have to be- become proficient on HoloLens and then we're there. It's it's all it takes. Yeah. yeah. See? I'm, I'm here to give us all hope. Thanks, Lisa. Um, <laughs> now we're just about out of time. Before we go, I like to end things on a on a uh, like. I want to give you a smile because sometimes the topics, not today so much, but sometimes the topics on this show are a little depressing. So we have the fuzzy puppy update. No puppies in this one, but um, uh, it's still pretty good. Good news, everybody. Our drone filled future where the skies are just entirely. I watched Ready Player One, and uh, boy, they got drones everywhere in the future in that movie. And uh, the good news is that future may be a little further off than we thought. The Russian post office invited a bunch of journalists to a demo of their brand new postal drone because in the future in russia uh in russia <laughs> drones deliver mail it's that's not the joke anyway uh it's designed to deliver mail from the post office to your local village and all of that and they've got the press there and everybody's watching as the drone lifts into the air executes a bank turn and smashes straight into the side of the building reducing <laughs> oh. it into tiny little pieces oh, which no. is then posted on the internet for everyone to watch and all i'll say is some weeks you get the fuzzy puppy on this show and some weeks you just get the sad trombone and this week is one of those <laughs> anyway that brings us to the end of this edition of download lisa schmeiser where can people find the stuff that you do uh start with twitter L- which is just l s c h m e i s e r and i pretty much link to anything i do there or go to itprotoday.com and I edit a boatload of stuff on there and occasionally right there too. All right. And Mark, where can people find the stuff you do? I write every day for PC World or you can also find me on Twitter, Twitter at Mark, M-A-R-K-H-A-C-H-M-A-N. All right. Excellent. And Stephen Hackett, thank you for putting the show together this week as always. You bet. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. I have been your host, Jason Snell. And until next week, we'll be watching those headlines so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.